An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to have the great Nick Harcourt. Nick is the most influential DJ of the earliest 21st century. You might know him from his radio work in Woodstock, New York, or his years hosting KCRW's Morning Becomes Eclectic in Los Angeles, or currently more than 10 years at KCSN, also in LA. Nick's influence is not just my opinion. Here's what the New York Times said, quote, he's emerged as the country's most important disc jockey and a genuine bellwether, end quote. Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, said simply, Nick has impeccable taste. Among those whose careers Nick can be credited with midwifing and accelerating are Travis, Coldplay, Dido, Death Cab for Cutie, Nora Jones, David Gray, and Adele. Nick's also been a music producer for TV and movies. He's hosted a show on DirecTV, acted, and most recently written and recorded his own music in a side project called Jump Circus. Last, but certainly not least, Nick is also the host of the Sounds of Success podcast from Spark Network, which is also the sponsor of Outside In, and I highly recommend the podcast. Welcome, Nick. It's a pleasure to actually hang out with you and, and be on the other end of the, of the podcast microphone. So let's go back to the beginning. What's your origin story? Interesting people often have had interesting lives, and you certainly have spending three continents and enough stories to fill them all. How'd you become the person you are both professionally and personally? Well, you know, I, I ran out of places that speak English, which is why I got stuck in America. I, I decided South Africa was not for me, but yeah, I grew up in England. I spent some time in Australia and I've lived in the United States now since fall of 1988. So that's, that's a little while. That's a whole life here in the U S I, I was born in Birmingham as it's pronounced in my part of the world. I know there's also a Birmingham in Alabama because I actually dated a girl from Birmingham. But no, I'm from Birmingham, which is basically where the Industrial Revolution started. I mean, the Industrial Midlands, that whole part of the world, when they first learned how to smelt iron ore and actually make it into something. And the first things they made were nails and they were made in the West Midlands, not that far away from where I grew up. So I come from a very sort of blue collar industrial area. And uh, yeah, for, be for better or worse, that's my hometown. So let's talk about Blue Collar for a second. You're a, uh, a fan of English Premier League football club, Aston Villa. Well, I am, yeah. You know, clearly one reason is that it's in, let me try to pronounce it correctly, Birmingham. Yep, well but done. there are other teams there. I mean, the Wolves are close by, Birmingham City's right there, though, in the next division. Ooh. Is the choice of team location-based fandom, or does it signify... So sort of socioeconomic or psychological identity, sort of like mods versus rockers in the sixties. Oh, wow. Golly gosh. Um, 
by the way, recommend anybody who wants to know about mods and rockers in the 60s, if you don't have the time to read all about it, just check out the Quadrophenia movie that The Who made about that time. Um, well, English Premier League football and football soccer uh, in general has changed an awful lot since I was a kid. I mean, it is now a multi-billion dollar worldwide business. So things are a little bit different in how people select their teams. But when I was a kid, you picked the team where you lived. And as you mentioned, there were a couple around um, the area where I lived. Birmingham City, obviously I come from Birmingham. Uh, Aston is a suburb of Birmingham. And then the other teams you mentioned, you mentioned Wolves, who are from Wolverhampton, which is 20 miles down the road. There's another one 20 miles in the other direction, Coventry, Coventry City. There's also West Bromwich Albion, which is just part of Birmingham as well. So when I was a kid around eight and nine, and I was starting to play football with my friends at school, and I went home to a, a friend of mine's home, and his older brother was a Villa fan. And we call him the Villa. And so was Keith, who was my, my pal, my best friend growing up. And uh, it was obvious. It was like, okay, so you're going to support Aston Villa. They seem to be the cool team in, in Birmingham. I like their colors as well. It's a very important thing when you're eight. Claret and blue instead of just blue and white, which was, was Birmingham. And there is an interesting sidebar here. My grandfather, my, my mother's dad, who was uh, long gone, fabulous man, he was a Birmingham City fan and he said, I'll, I'll take you to football games, but I'm, I'm not going to take you to the Villa. I'll take you to, to Birmingham. So I, I went to a few games with my granddad to, at Birmingham City and I was like, nah, this is not what I want. It's just, it's, I want to go see those other guys. The other guys seem cooler. And again, if you do any sort of research into the history of those Birmingham uh, football soccer clubs, uh, you'll find that Aston Villa have been the sort of bigger club throughout the years. So that's how I picked Aston Villa. And in my travels around the world, it's one of those very few things that I've hung on to. There are a couple of other things, but my football team has been a big part of it. So the other thing that stayed with you, obviously, is music. I, I read a, uh, an article where you said that when you were growing up, those tangible moments of love you remember were when you watched your parents dancing to Beatles records. Mm. And let's get philosophical. Why is music so universal? I mean, every culture has music and it's also of a moment. And yet there are such personal moments and recollections. It, it seems to have a resonance for people disproportionate to just being one of the senses. What is it about music that universally lifts us up or brings us down and affects us individually and even creates sort of Proustian moments of memory? It's a fantastic question. And it's a multifaceted answer, I think, to, to go along with that. I did a TEDx talk back in 2012 out here in, uh, in California, you know, one of the smaller TED talks, the TEDx Conejo talk, which is uh, a little further north of, of Los Angeles um, in the Agora Hills area. And the talk that I did was how music brings us together. And so this is 2012, so it's been a while since I did all that research. But what I effectively gathered, you can find it online if you want to, if you look for Nick Harcourt TED Talk. What I found through the research of that it's, is the universality of music, I think, is the beat. It all comes down to the beat, and it's about our hearts, and it's about that syncopation that we find when we are listening to music. And obviously there is, there is music that you don't necessarily have drums in or anything, but there's always a beat in the way people are playing music. So I think that's a part of it. I mean, it, we're just naturally predisposed to tuning into that. And in the TED talk I did, I, I 
imagined, you know, back in the, the caveman days when our ancestors were banging on rocks, picking up sticks and making those very early beats. And all of a sudden sort of music came out of that. The other thing about music is that with lyrics, well, clearly if you connect with a lyric, then that's going to be something that is important. And also back to the beat, tapping your toes and dancing. I hear music in one of those two ways. It either makes me want to move or if I tune into a lyric, it makes me think. So there's different aspects of it. That's interesting because previously I thought you said that you don't particularly listen to lyrics, but to the overall feel of the song. Well, that, um, that is actually true. I have said that, that I don't particularly listen to lyrics, but I mean, I do sometimes. And, and I guess what I was just saying is when you tune in, if you tune into the lyrics, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but you know, it depends on the song. If I'm listening to a Nick Drake song, it's going to be hard for me not to actually tune into the lyrics. But if I'm listening to a lot of rock music, if I'm listening to a lot of dance music, I don't take too much notice of it. Has that, has that changed what you listen to? Because you recently started writing your own music, including lyrics. Has mm -hmm. that process changed how you listen to music? The process of writing and recording my own music came about because I didn't feel like I really understood the language of how music was created, if that makes any sense. Because I didn't go to music school. I can't write or, or read music. Not that that's a prerequisite for any musician, but I really wanted to understand how musicians' brains worked so that I could be better in my conversations and interviews with them. And uh, essentially what happened was around about 10 years ago, I was in, in a New York hotel room. I was with a new love who is actually my partner now. And she's a musician. Her name is Kita Klein. She has music out there. In fact, we use a little bit of her music for the music on, on the Sound of Success podcast. But I had just fallen in love with somebody who was a musician and we were talking about working together and me maybe producing some music for her. And I just thought, you know, I need to figure out how this shit works properly before I can go into a studio and start telling people what they should be doing. And so I learned how to play guitar. It's something that I'd been very shy of when I was a kid. I had a guitar at 14. I was discouraged from, from playing it. And I kind of gave up early on. It was a difficult time as a kid anyway. And uh, I tried again subsequently in my early 20s, maybe 30, just gave it up. And I decided, let me just learn this. And I, I'd read an article in the New York Times as well at that time that said, you know, as you get older, it's never too late to challenge your brain. It's never too late to learn something new because you need to keep learning as you get older, get that brain working. And the examples they gave were learn a new language or pick up a musical instrument. And I figured, seeing as I've been in the music business for 30 years, maybe that was the way to go. And so I started to learn. I learned how to put some chords together. I never felt like playing anybody else's songs. I was never going to be the guy who was like, let me learn that Dylan song. I just wanted to learn how to play. And once I'd done that, I found songs coming together. And the songs that I released a couple of years ago now come from a session I literally did probably nine, eight years ago where I went into a studio in, in LA with some friends, and I'm fortunate that I have some very talented friends. We knocked out the basic tracks for four songs live, and I've released three of them so far because it's not my main job. There's one more kicking around. But yeah, essentially, I, I decided to write and learn how to play my own music so I would better understand how to speak to musicians, so I would have the language to speak to musicians. You know, there is a long history of DJs going out front doing Lee Hazelwood, B.B. King, Willie Nelson, Peter Wolf of Jay Giles. 
and, and uh, we're not even going to count Rick D's and Disco Duck, right? I mean, obviously you're not looking for a new career, but now that you've listened to it with a little uh, distance, what do you think? I should also say the lyrics are pretty dark. Um, <laughs> Love tears as open leaves blood on the floor. Think you're broken, but you're so much more. And your delivery is sort of like a cross between a late career lettered code and Tom Waits. So it clearly matches the lyric. Mm. I, I know you didn't do it to sell, I'll call it records, but sell downloads. But are you happy with how they sound now? Yeah, I am. I should point out that like most guys that I knew growing, growing up anyway, I, I actually was in a band when I was like in my early 20s. So I had sung in a rock band that never did anything. We did demos, but no, nothing ever happened. The band for anybody who's interested was called Red Cassette. Great name, I think. But we never released anything. So I'd done that sort of screaming on stage as a young 20-something guy with a, you know, a lot of Newcastle Brown inside me. This was very different. That was before I found this career. I'm a very different person, obviously, in my late 50s as I was when I started, mid-50s when I started writing these songs. And obviously, I've been in the music business for a chunk of time as well. So I had to find the voice. And there was one song in particular, Concrete and Sand is the name of the song. I was very fortunate to uh, get a friend of mine to do a beautiful string section on that song as well. And as I was trying to figure out how to sing this song, originally it was written on a guitar and then a friend of mine who collaborated in producing the songs with me tried it on piano and all of a sudden the song fell into place and the vocal just sort of found itself and I was all of a sudden singing in this low register somewhere between, you mentioned Tom Waits, um, Nick Cave is, is one that comes to mind, Lou Reed. And listen, if anybody hears what I'm singing and says it's reminiscent of any of those guys, that is beyond flattering. And so I found the voice to, to match the songs, I guess. And yeah, I, I think I'm happy with the way they came out. Great. You have the advantage, of course, of doing this for a different reason. A lot of people are still looking for success. And I, I love, if, if I had a nickel for every time someone said, it's all about the music, you know, I'd be a wealthy person, but it's just not so in terms of success. Just as in finance, lots of talented people never find success. Occasionally, untalented people do succeed, at least for a while. There's a, there's a lot of context and business savvy and even luck that determines which acts make it. In, in fact, the project that we're talking about where you uh, recorded your own music is called Jump Circus. Mm -hmm. So explicitly acknowledge jumping into the circus that's the music industry. Pretty much. So what are the factors that that contribute to commercial success in the music industry today and how have they changed over your career? Well, it's unrecognizable from when I first started and how music gets heard, first of all. Clearly from the days of half a dozen radio stations and TV stations that you would perhaps listen to, to oversaturation of whatever you want, whenever you want it on all sorts of platforms. That's a big difference in how people hear music, how people consume music, and obviously distribution. I mean, the, the best thing about the digital revolution for me musically is that it took the power of distribution away from record labels and put it in the hands of the artists. And depending on how much work the artists want to do, their destiny to a certain extent can, can be in their own hands. There are many, many musicians and bands who prior to COVID, let's just be clear because COVID has just devastated everybody's um, business model, independent musicians who made music on the road, most of them. But having the distribution in their own hands and then being able to book tours for themselves, up until COVID, there were a lot of people who were quite 
making nice, nice livings, you know, being able to, to, to do what they wanted to do. So today it really does seem to be about young, pretty, whether you're a boy or a girl. And really sort of putting these people who look good with producers and writers and really sort of industrializing the process of making music. In, in my conversations that I've had with musicians through the years in, in the many interviews that I've done, when I was hosting the direct TV show, Guitar Center Sessions, one of the guys that I, I spoke to was Ryan Tedder, who is the guy behind the band One Republic. And he has written some of the biggest hits of the last dozen years for all sorts of artists. And so I talked to him about writing songs and he said, look, when I decided I wanted to learn how to write songs, I wanted to learn the DNA of how to write a song. I didn't just want to write a song. I wanted to write a hit. And so you have labels, managers, publishers putting together songwriters with new artists to create hits. They know what they're doing. They know when is the right place to come in for the chorus, when is the right place to go out. They know all the hooks. They're writing hits. That's their job. But that's not really that different from what they were doing in the Brill Factory all those years ago either. It's really sort of understanding how music uh, worms get into people's ears and, and then writing those. So I think that's a big difference from, from what it was a few years ago in so much as it's gotten even younger. I mean, if you turn on the TV and see the people who are being promoted, most of them are under 20, new artists. In your primary gig as a DJ, you're known for your interviews. Have you changed how you interview through the years? What have you learned in terms of how to be a better interviewer? You have to listen. I mean, it's real simple. You have to listen. And, and, and I learned that a long time ago. I, I'll tell you something that may not be in my bios or anywhere out, out there online. My father, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, and also, unfortunately, we didn't have a great relationship. But my father was a journalist who started as Ian Fleming's copy boy in London, Ian Fleming, the James Bond author, of course. In other words, making tea when he was 15. He was a newspaper guy. And he moved up to, to Birmingham when he was young, working for the uh, Birmingham Evening Dispatch, I think it was called at the time, and then got into television when television first started. He was there when commercial television first started in, in the Midlands in the UK, which was in the early 60s, I guess. And he became a, a political reporter and did a lot of interviews. Um, and one of the things that we didn't talk about it much, to be honest with you, because of our relationship. But one of the things that I noticed about his interviews was that he gave people time to, to answer questions, that he was listening before asking the next question. And as I sort of studied interviewers through the, through the years, as I was first sort of getting into this business, that was the one consistent thing that I found from all of them in all walks of life, whoever they were talking to, the people who were good, whether it was, you know, David Frost or Dick Cavett, these guys were listening to the answers. So often you will be hearing an interview either on a podcast, a radio, or watching something on television. And the host is more interested in getting to the next question than actually listening to what the guest is actually saying. And what I found from, from my experience is that if you're really, really listening and you're prepared and you know your next question anyway, you never know where that interview is going to go because all of a sudden somebody says something and boom, you're off down a little rabbit hole. And, and it's been proved to me time and time again. When I was doing Guitar Center Sessions, it was a live recording television show and I, I worked with an earpiece. So I had guys in the truck, you know, telling me, hey, we need to move on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And 
many, many times when I was speaking to people, whether it was, you know, head from the band Corn or whether it was James Taylor, if you just leave that space and you just listen to what they're saying, all of a sudden they're talking about things that they haven't told anybody else. And that I think is really the gift of, of being a good interviewer. And I'm not saying I am, but I'm saying that is the gift of being a good interviewer, which is the ability to simultaneously be aware of where you're going and listening to what your guest is, is actually saying to you. So you can make a left turn if you want to. You can always come back to the next question. And that's where the good stuff is. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. One of the tidbits that turned up when I was doing the research for the show, Nick, was that you were the voiceover talent for years for Land Rover's commercials. I was, and yeah. That that somehow just struck me as both perfect and incongruous at the same time, which I know is a paradox. <laughs> tell, tell me about that. Well, look, it's the only voiceover gig I've had of any substance, which which is ironic because it was a pretty big gig. And it really came about from somebody, I had a voiceover agent in New York for a couple of years before I moved out to LA. And I would drive from Woodstock where I was living at the time down to New York to go do auditions, literally drive two, two and a half hours, find a parking spot, go into a building, do an audition and drive back up to Woodstock. Obviously things are a little different now and you can telecommute and moving out to LA, everything's a lot closer anyway. But I got myself an agent when I moved out to LA and nothing for a couple of years, uh, a couple of auditions here and there, nothing. And then one day I got a call from a guy who was a fan of the radio show, who was somewhere down in Orange County, who worked for the advertising agency that uh, Young and Rubicon, I think it was at the time, who had the, the, the Land Rover account. And interestingly enough, I was over in London like a week or so later, and they got me into a studio in London. They had me do some reads. And Amazingly, they hired me and I did every single Land Rover spot, whether it was on the radio or television or on the web between, I think it was 2007, 2008. I had two years and uh, it was a lot of fun and I'm uh, not complaining about the money, but yeah, that was my Land Rover thing. You know, the funny thing is people still hit me up and say, oh, I heard your new Land Rover commercial. I'm like, that's another English guy. <laughs> Well, I, I hope you either got a Land Rover or at least had them. Uh, I did not. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? You mean in life in general? You can answer it however you want, but let's say one in music and one in life. There's so much music being released right now. Uh, you and I are speaking on a Thursday and every Thursday is the day that I dive into new music that has been kicking around for, for the last week or so. Obviously through the holidays, we're just talking in the middle of January through the holidays, there's not a lot of new stuff coming out. But I am excited by um, a couple of trends that I'm seeing. One of them is a return to vintage singers, female vocalists in, in particular. It's been going on for a while. I think, you know, obviously people like Amy Winehouse sort of kicked that into gear, but we're seeing a lot of really good younger singers, uh, songwriters coming out right now. I'm going to give you a couple of examples in a minute that will plug in, I guess. There's also a lot more women making music right now. A lot more independent artists are getting music out. 
uh, for radio, it's tough. I mean, I work at a radio station where we do give a lot of independent and new music a, a chance, but radio in general tends to not really support those artists. So non-commercial radio, which is where I work, public radio essentially, or college radio, that's where those opportunities are. So I, I see trends and some, some really great sort of throwback styling. And I see a lot more young women making music. And I think that we're going to see as my kids' generation starts coming into the business, and that's Gen uh, Z, obviously, we're going to see more and more of that. Styles are shifting. But I also see another trend that, that I don't like, which is songs that don't have choruses. I don't know if you've noticed any of that stuff. It's just like verse, 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 gone. So I don't like those, but uh, th- th- there's some great music being being made right now. What am I passionate about outside of new music? You know, the last two years have really put a lot of people's lives into perspective, and I'm no different. My passion at, at this point is to be the best person that I can be to the people who need me, who rely on me. It's really simple. I mean, I I think I've already grown up as much as I'm going to. There's still more to learn, but I think I'm a grown up now, (laughs) maybe. Um, And I feel like I I need to be responsible. You know, I need to be responsible for for the people around me who need me to show up. So that's perhaps not the answer you were expecting, but family, I guess family is really the answer. We'll get back to the music, but I I want to explore that second one for a second. I had the pleasure of being interviewed by you on your Sound of Success. and That was fun. You asked me at what point is there uh, any motto I take, and and I said I I always listen to music, which is why I was so thrilled to be uh, interviewed by you. And there was a uh, Michael Franti song out at the time, which was called Work Hard and Be Nice to People. And it seemed to me that that was a pretty good life motto. What does being there for people who need you mean? Is it listening to them? Is it being empathetic? Is it tough love? How do you be a better person? How do you be a better person? I guess listening is 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 really the answer. Listening. Um, but really it's it's about taking yourself out of your own headspace and out of your own experience and trying to put yourself in somebody else's situation, whether it's an 18-year-old son who is going through the shit that 18-year-old boys go through and, and trying to remember, okay, so you're 64 now, but you were 18. Trying to remember what that was like. Put yourself in that position for a minute. You know, think about it instead of just being reactionary. I have found myself giving a beat in between answering questions so that I can just think before I just run my mouth. And also in sending letters and emails and things like that. I, I'm just a little more thoughtful about it. That says more about perhaps my past where I would just be a more reactionary person. Now I just tend to sort of give it a little bit more time. And, and tying back into, you know, what does that mean? It just really means understanding that it's not all about me. And that's hard for most of us because we've all got narcissistic tendencies, I think. It's not all about me. Unfortunately, you have to wait till you're 60 to get that. You know, it would be better to be able to get it, obviously. But I I believe that's the way it sort of works. And and then you die. It seems trivial to get back to music at this point, but I said we would, so I shall. You had mentioned some, you wanted to note some 
female vintage singers that we're excited to right now. So I want to hear the names, but I also want to note that it's appropriate that we do that today. The day we're recording this is the day after Ronnie Spector died and every music station in the world probably is playing Ronnie Spector songs. So let's hear who might be inheriting some of that torch. Ronnie will always be a little bit part and special, but new people are special too. So who's exciting to you now? There's a, a songwriter who might be from the East Coast originally. I'm not too sure. She's actually out of Portland, Oregon. She's been around a little while, but is getting a little traction right now. Her name is Ruby Friedman, and uh, she releases music under her name, as well as the Ruby Friedman Orchestra. So that gives you a little sense of, of what's going on there. There's another artist I like a lot called Sarah Shook. Not too sure where she's from. She releases music on her own and as well as, uh, as in a band called Sarah Shook and the disarmers. So th those are a couple right now. And then on the, on the, the, the male side, um, I'm loving the stuff that Anderson East is, is putting out right now. And then there's, uh, there's also, um, another guy from, from here in, in Los Angeles, Nick Waterhouse. I love his stuff as well. So that, that's a couple, couple of ideas for you. Great. Let's end with a couple of quick answer questions. How do you relax? I don't. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? Hawaii. Which island? Anyone where I can get to as cheaply as possible and borrow a house and uh, not have too many people around. I don't know. Maui, maybe. Okay. If you could magically whisper one thing into the ear of everyone in America, What's the one fact or belief you wish everyone knew? Take a deep breath. Be here now. Everything's okay. Listeners to Outside In know that last question is normally the final one, but you have a trademark closing question on your podcast, Sounds of Success. So in your honor, let me end this with your own indie question. How do you feel right now? <laughs> <laughs> sprung that one on me. Thanks, John. Um, I feel okay. I feel all right. As I said at the beginning of uh, our conversation before we started rolling, you know, it's been a really weird start to the year, but I'm okay. And it's been very enjoyable hanging out and, and talking with you uh, on the other side of the podcast, Mike, obviously. And uh, I hope it was okay. It was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, legendary DJ, author, film and TV musical supervisor, actor, and recording artist, Nick Harcourt. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcast, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>